morning, everybody. If you'd like to, turn over to uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. Second Kings chapter 4. Once you get there, just pick up in verse 1. Let's read the, the first seven verses. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets, meaning her husband was a disciple of Elisha, unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? What do you want? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. This woman only had one thing. Then he said, Go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few, get a whole bunch of them. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him, and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. It didn't run out. Keep that in mind. That's an important point. It just stopped flowing. That pot was still full. Verse 7, Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Now, the gospel teaching in this story is very simple, and it's actually twofold, and I'm going to give it to you up front, and then we'll talk about it. But here's what it is. Here's the first part. If you have Jesus Christ... You have everything. You are absolutely full. You lack nothing before God. Nothing else could possibly be required of you. Nothing has been left undone. You are complete now. Here's the second thing. If you have Christ, this is one thing that all those who have Christ have in common. They don't have anything else. What do you have in the house? She said, Thy servant has nothing, just one thing, one pot of oil, but nothing else. That's what everybody who has Christ has in common. They have absolutely nothing else. Now, do we see that here? Let's talk about this widow for a second. Now, this widow, my heart goes out to her, to her but also to her husband. It's for this reason. So her husband is dead. He was a disciple of Elisha, and he had to die with this knowledge. He knew that they were poverty-stricken, his family, he knew that he had racked up a whole bunch of debt. He knew that once he died, they would have no way of income. And he knew that to pay off those debts, his sons would become slaves and would be forced to work off that debt, and they wouldn't be released until the debt was worked off, and he had to die with that knowledge. And this is a man who feared God. This is a man who knew God. I'm sure there was faith 
there at the very end, but this still would have been a very hard circumstance to die with. Worse off, though, is the wife. She actually has to live through it. The man does not. And so she has no source of income. She's completely destitute. There's no one to provide for her, no way of getting money. But it gets worse. She's in debt, right? She's in the rears. What's very interesting is she's in debt through her union with somebody else. She didn't borrow the money her husband did, but now she's inherited the debt. And the consequences of that debt are relatively simple. Bondage. Now she's got to watch her two sons be taken away and put into slavery because we can't come up with the goods. Now it's a very sad story and my heart goes out to her. But the gospel's there. Especially in this right here. You go all the way back, you go back to the fall. What happened in the garden? All men, every man to ever live, we all share union with one man and that's Adam. And just like this woman's husband died, what happened in the garden with Adam disobeyed God? Claire said it. He died. He didn't die physically. He died spiritually. He lost all his spiritual faculties. His spirit died. He became a sinner, incapable of doing anything but sin before God. That's what he became. And everybody who came through him, which is the entire human race, we all share a union with this man, and we inherit that debt through that union. I love the way the Lord creates. Who would have ever thought creating an entire race of creatures and you start with just one and the entire race is built up in that one man? When he created Adam, he created the entire human race. When he disobeyed God, the entire human race disobeyed God. And here's the consequences of that disobedience. Bondage. Born in bondage to a nature that can do absolutely nothing but sin. It cannot receive Christ. It will not believe the gospel. It cannot love. Completely and utterly dead in trespasses and sins and in bondage to a law that we can't keep. Bondage is the consequences, just like that. And somebody says, and this is a legitimate question, is that fair? Is that fair? Adam sinned, I was in him, and now I suffer the consequences? All I can do is give you what the Scripture says. That's all I need to do. This is what it says, Romans 5.12. It says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. And here's the really important part. For that, all have sinned. This thing of union, this thing of me being stored up in Adam, how does that work? I have absolutely no idea. I'm a cop. I do not know, but I know this. I know that God says is, in Adam, I did it. And we need to recognize what Adam is. He's a vehicle, folks. He's a vehicle for the entire human race. And when Adam sinned against God, all of us collectively got together and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. We want separation. We want separation from God. We want to be our own gods. You did that. I did that. We did that in Adam. That's what God's word says. That's all we need. And now we suffer the consequences. We're born in this world with these dead, sinful, evil natures. And there is absolutely no one to blame but me. That's it. And you for yours. Can I blame the sovereignty of God? Absolutely not. Although the fall was completely and utterly according to his will and purpose. No. Can I blame Adam? No. The fault rests with me. I did, in fact, do it. But this woman... 
who is like everyone else, like everyone I just described. She had one thing going for her, this destitute, in-debt, bondage-stricken woman. And it's found in verse 1 there. Look at 2 Kings verse 1 again, or 4 verse 1. It says, Now there cried a certain woman. Now we see that word over and over in the Scriptures. The Lord came to a certain man. He sought out a certain man. She's a certain woman right here. I have never once before looked up that word. I want to see what it meant this time. Overwhelmingly, over 687 times in the scripture, it is translated into this one word, one. She's a one woman. She is one whom God loved from the foundations of the world. She is one who Christ agreed to be for her particular surety. She is one for whom Christ bore her sins in his body and put them away on the cross. She is one in Christ. She only has one thing going for her. She's a one. That's absolutely it. But if you're one, you got everything you could possibly need. This is what John 1, verse 12 and 13 says. It says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, spiritual birth, spiritual life, which were born, not of blood, not according to my relationship with somebody else, nor of the will of the flesh, my power over my flesh to do better or to stop sinning, nor of the will of man, not up to your choice, but of God. What's the difference between a saved man and a lost man? What's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, a wicked man and a righteous man? What is the difference? You're either of God and always have been, and always will be, or you're not. That's it. Now, this one who is of God, what did she do? Well, it's very simple. Verse 1 tells us, she cried. And this is what everybody who is of God does. They cry. They cry out for mercy. God be merciful to me, the sinner. The question is, though, this, on what grounds? God is just. God is holy. God is also merciful. Those two things must meet. He cannot show mercy at the expense of his justice. On what grounds should this mercy be shown? If you notice, this woman approached by merit, but the merit wasn't her own. It was her husband's. Look again. Verse 1. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. She came on the grounds of merit, the merit of her husband. He feared God, and we come on the exact same grounds of merit, the merits of our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. He feared God. What does that mean? God feared God. Christ feared God. What does that mean? It means he did exactly what his father told him to do, and he believed him every step of the way. The father said, take these people, save them. They're completely your responsibility. He did what the father told him to do. He said, if you die, you will satisfy my punishment. You will satisfy my perfect sense of justice, and I will raise you up from the dead. He believed his father Perfectly, and that's the merit under which we came and we come. 
Christ and him crucified. He did what you told him to do. And that is the grounds of my merit. Look to him for it. Don't look for a reason in me. Now look at verse 2. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. Two questions are asked. He says, first this, what do you want? And I find this interesting. She didn't answer the question. He says, what do you want? Provided no answer to that one right off the bat. Why? It was very simple. It was because her need presupposed what she wanted. We had an interesting encounter last weekend, something we're not used to. We were actually around a whole bunch of religious people, people from the world. Uh, and during this encounter, we heard some of the wildest stuff, uh, all things you would imagine, but some pretty wild stuff. And at the end, we were trying to figure out what worldly denomination some of these people were from. We were looking up their charters and such, right? It was amazing to see the hills that these people were trying to die on. One was saying, we believe that the Lord created the earth in six literal days. It has to be six literal days. We will accept nothing less. It must be six literal days. And they kept on going through this. And here's what I thought. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if it was six days. I don't care if it's six minutes. I don't care if it was each one of those days represents a million years. And it was six million years. However the Lord done it, I bow to it. It's glorious. It's great. But here's the issue. I don't care because my needs are much greater than that. I do not have time for those things. My needs are just like this woman. All these people who are of God, they have the exact same needs as this woman. What were her needs? Well, it's very simple. She needed what was necessary to live. She could not produce. She could not come up with what she needed to live. What do I need to live? What is God's standard? Well, this is what is said by Peter in 2 Peter 2.5 concerning Noah, concerning Noah. He's referring to as a preacher of righteousness. And I find that interesting because you read through the book of Genesis, you don't find one sermon by Noah as far as I can tell. But he says he's a preacher of righteousness. What does that mean to preach righteousness? Does that mean you better be righteous? You better get your life straightened out. You better stop this sin business. You better get up with the law and make your peace with God. No. He was a preacher of righteousness. What does that mean? God is righteous. That's what I need to live. I need a righteousness before God. A perfect righteousness that can stand the test of time, that can stand the test of the law. Inwardly, outwardly, I must have a righteousness. Where am I going to find one of those? I'm not going to find it in me. Can't keep the law, not even once. The first verse here tells us that. Where am I going to find it? Looking to Christ and his righteousness alone. For his people, he is the fulfillment of the law and the end of the law for righteousness. The second thing she needs. She needed her debts paid. That's what I need. I need a kinsman redeemer. I need a Boaz. I need one who is bone of my bone, who is flesh of my flesh, who is both willing and able to restore everything that I lost. What did we lose in the fall? We lost everything. We lost our uprightness. 
our innocence, our walk with God. We lost all that, plunged into a sin and sinful nature. I need somebody to come along and restore everything I lost in Adam, but make it to where it's better, even better than that, to where I can never lose it again. It must be this time immutable to where it cannot be changed. And here's the final thing I need. This is the final thing this woman needed. She needed freedom from bondage. I need these things. My debt's paid. My sin's put away. A righteousness before God. And I need it without bondage, which means I need it without any strings attached. I need it without God requiring anything from me. Just have it freely given. That's it. And that's what every empty vessel finds in Christ. All debt's paid. Enemies put down. Righteousness restored completely and utterly before God with absolutely no strings attached. Nothing left for you to do. No works to perform. Just rest. Now here's the second question he asked. He said, what do you have? What do you want? Presupposed by need. What do you have? This is how she answered. Thy handmaid hath not anything in the house. Say one thing. Save a pot of oil. I only have one thing, and I don't have anything else. Well, all these folks who are of God, they all have this in common. They have one thing. They have Christ and him crucified. That is their only hope of salvation. And they have absolutely nothing else. And if I have Christ and my best intentions to do better, and if I have Christ in my Bible reading, and if I have Christ in my church attendance, if I have Christ in my work at a soup kitchen, if I have Christ in anything else, understand I do not have Christ, but everyone who has Christ has this one thing in common. I don't have anything else. Lock, stock, and barrel. No rever- rever- reserves. No retreat. I have one thing. I have Christ in him crucified, and he's promised that to sinners he is enough and he is everything. And if he's all you got, he's absolutely all you need. She had nothing, just one thing, Christ. The Lord says this in a parable. I enjoy reading this. Turn over there to Luke chapter 14. You call this what you would a, a principle, a doctrine. I don't know what the exact term we would use for it is. I'm going to call it a principle here today. But if there is a gospel principle that I enjoy more than anything else, that I enjoy hearing more than anything else, it is this. It's that this gospel, this Christ, this salvation, it's for sinners. It is my favorite, absolute favorite, to be told, sinner, come, eat, Christ is for you. And it's not if you do this, he'll be for you. He's either always been for you or he was never for you. And the question is whether he's for you or not. That's it. If you're a sinner, he's for you. He always has been and he always will be. Look at what the parable says here in Luke 14, verse 12. He said, this is the Lord speaking. Then said he also to him that bade him. A Pharisee had invited him over for a lunch on the Sabbath day. He said, when thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, 
lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. And he says here, here's who you don't invite to the feast. People who can pay you back. People who you invite them over, and the expectation is they're going to treat you the same way. They're going to invite you over here in a couple weeks and put on the same feast for you and recompense you. Quid pro quo. I do for you, you do for me. That's not who you invite. Verse 13, but when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. This feast of Christ, who is it for? Those who can do something for him? Somebody who can make his work effectual? Somebody who can make a good decision? No, that's not who it's for. Poor. They don't have anything. They don't have any ability. They don't have any righteousness. They're absolutely bankrupt. Lame and main, impotent have to be carried everywhere they go and blind. Can't see one reason would God be merciful to them. That's it. Those are the people. They're not invited to the feast. It's much more powerful than that, and thank God it is. The better word is dragged. They are dragged to the feast. The Holy Spirit calls out, and he grabs a hold of them, and he drags them to the feast of Christ, and he's called to eat. The entire time? The man is doing exactly what he wants to do because he's being given a new will. Now, go back to your text. Look at verse 3. Elisha speaks. He says, Then he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. And this is the one prerequisite to be a vessel that would be filled. You had to be empty. You have to be a sinner. You have to have nothing in you. No water, no oil, no nothing. Bone dry. That was the one prerequisite to be a vessel. That's it. What's a prerequisite for salvation? You're a sinner. You got nothing. That's it. Verse 4. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. Now here we have a command and a twofold promise. Elijah says, you go get a bunch of empty vessels. Get a whole bunch of them. He didn't say how many, he just said a lot. That's it. And you bring them in, you shut the door, and you start pouring that oil out of that pot, right? And you start filling up them vessels, and you just set each one of them to the side, just like that. And here's the promise. It's twofold. Fullness. Every empty vessel you got is going to be filled, filled completely and utterly to the brim. There's a promise of creative activity. What do I mean by that? This woman had a pot of oil, right? She opens the top. I don't know what the pot looked like. I don't know what they were like back then. But she looks inside, and there is a finite amount of oil inside when she looks. And I don't know how much that would have been. It could have been a gallon. It could have been a couple liters. It could have been a couple pints. I have no idea. But as far as she could tell, and the fact of the matter was, there was a finite amount of oil in there. And so she gets the first vessel and she starts pouring. And she fills it up at the top and she sets it aside. And she keeps on going. She keeps on going. And after a while, common sense kicks in. And she says, I have poured more oil out of this pot than was ever originally in it. I'm looking at like, 16 gallons of oil here, and we started off with two pints, right? 
There's a promise here in salvation, the promise of creative activity, creating in a man what was not there before. This is the new man in Christ Jesus, a holy man, a perfect man, a man who loves God, a man who believes the gospel. That's the creative activity of salvation, creating something that was not there before. David said this in Psalm 51.10. He said, And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create. Do not fix up the old. Do not try to renovate or modify the old man, the old heart, the old nature. No, something brand new must be given, the very spirit of God dwelling in a man. The promise of creative activity. And here's the second one. The promise of fullness. Being completely and utterly filled. You being that empty vessel. There's a psalm that deals with that and you're all incredibly familiar with it. Psalm 23. Turn over there. I'd say a lot of you could probably recite this psalm, but let's look at it again and look at it through these eyes, right? Look at verse 1 of Psalm 23. David says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He is not everybody's shepherd, but he is the shepherd of empty vessels. Keep that in mind. He is the savior of sinners. Keep that in mind. Who's our shepherd? The Lord the one who can be absolutely trusted, that one who cannot fail. If he purposes, it must be. And David says, this one who is my shepherd, this creative one, this one who cannot fail, he's going to fill me, and I shall not want for anything. I'm going to have absolutely everything I need, plumb full. In what way, David? Verse 2. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. I'm not going to want for rest. I have full rest because Christ has done absolutely everything that is necessary to make me fully acceptable by the Father. There's nothing left for me to do. Just trust him. Just have rest. We have fullness of rest. He leadeth me beside the still waters. I shall not want. Filled with peace. There is true peace between every believer every member of the elect, and the Father, because the Lord Jesus Christ has made our complete peace with God. By owning our sin, by paying for it, and putting it away through his death, there is now peace. There is no reason for the Father to be angry with us. Because of what Christ has done, we have full peace, not lacking any way. Verse 3. He restoreth my soul. I have fullness of restoration. Everything we lost in Adam... Fully and utterly restored, but way better. We said that, right? It has to be better. It can't be like it was before. It has to be better. It has to be immutable. It has to be unchangeable. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. The fullness of immutable righteousness. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Full of righteousness because Christ is my righteousness before God. Not lacking anything before the law. The law that once said guilty now says justified. Got nothing to say about that one right there. Completely and utterly justified in Christ. Verse 4, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Full of comfort in death. Now you think about that. That is one thing this world, everybody, you can say this about everyone. Everybody fears death in some way, shape, or form, right? But every believer has absolutely no reason to fear death. There's comfort in death. It's actually going to be the best day of our life. This old man gets put away. We are conformed perfectly to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This one who we see with an eye of faith and we hear with a hearing of faith but still seems afar off, faith's going to go away. It's going to be gone. And now we're going to have sight. We're actually going to be with him. Doesn't that sound good? No more sin. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Don't you long for good? I am tired of evil. I'm tired of the evil in me. I'm tired of the evil of this world. And I will say this again. I am tired of watching this world rip each other's shreds. I'm just tired of it. I long for good. I'm so thankful that Christ is in fact good. But that good day is coming. It's this day of death. This day that everyone else in this world fears. Everybody collectively fears. It's actually the very best day of our life. Those of us, us empty vessels. Verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over, full of protection from my enemies. I love how the Lord puts this, and David puts this here, because it, it speaks to our experience. My enemies, my sins, where are they? They're gone. Lord Jesus Christ said he bore them in his body. He paid the debt of those sins. He put them away. And they are as far as the east is from the west. They are gone. Really gone. Right? Where are my sins? All around me. In me. Staring them right in the face. Right? That's our experience, even though they're all defeated enemies, and they're all enemies that have been put as far as the east is from the west. What he's saying here, those are just illusions. Those enemies are dead enemies. Now, calm down. Sit down. My cup of mercy is never going to stop overflowing for you because of who your Savior is. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Full of what? Full of goodness. And that's what everything's going to be. From now to the day we pass, whether it feels good, whether it seems good, that's what we can expect, and that's where we'll all be goodness. We will have fullness of goodness and of mercy. Once again, why? What was the merit that this woman came on? The merit of her husband. He feared the Lord. That's why. We will always have that mercy from God. Why? Because Christ feared God. That's it. Full of all these things. In that list, do we lack anything? Does an empty vessel, a sinner, lack anything before God? Not if he has the one thing, Christ. Now, go back to your text and look at verse 5. So she went from him, from Elisha. 
and shut the door upon her and upon her sons who brought the vessels for her, and she poured out. Now, I think this is interesting. There's a little detail of the story that it's kind of hidden there. He told her, you go in there and you shut the door on you and your sons. And she did exactly what Elisha told her to do. She went in, she shut the door on her and her sons. You know what I thought about? I thought about Noah and the ark. The Lord said, get in the ark. And they got in the ark and the Lord shut them in. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about eternal security. It's talking about the eternality of salvation. That if the Lord has purposed to show you mercy and show you grace, that purpose has always been there. Fact is, if you're of God, you've always been of God. You always will be of God. Now, that recognizes the change in experience. There's a time when we know the Lord, there's a time we don't. Or you flip that over, there's a time we don't and a time we do. But in these things of eternity, everything's always in the now with the Lord. I enjoy reading the book of Revelations, and it's for this reason. Many reasons, but I, I think this is interesting. The book of Revelations has absolutely no respect to chronological order whatsoever. None whatsoever. It'll start telling you about something that actually happened in time, and then it'll go forward to something that's going to happen in eternity future, and then it'll flip back to something that happened in eternity past. No respect whatsoever to chronological order. Why? Because God is without time. He deals only in eternity, in the now. Everything is always in the present with him. If I'm a justified man, I've always been justified in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and I always will be. I can't get out. I can't mess this thing up. Christ died for you, you can't mess it up. Isn't the best news you ever heard? You're stuck. It's a good place to get stuck, but you're stuck. Verse 6. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more, and the oil stayed. The oil flowed as long as there was an empty vessel. What's going on right now? What's going on in every other generation? Well, it's very simple. The Lord's been calling out his chosen empty vessels, emptying them out, pouring them out to where they have nothing, and sitting down and pouring them into him, into them, the oil of his grace, taking something that was empty and making it full up with his grace. And then he takes it and he sits it aside in death. And he grabs the next one, empties them out, pours into him, sets them aside in death. And he does this over and over and over again. And that oil, it's going to keep flowing as the Lord has one elect in this world. But the very moment that that last one comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that oil is poured into him, and he's filled up, this thing's over, folks. That's it. That's what God is doing. You ever wonder, what is God doing? He is glorifying Jesus Christ, and he is saving his people. And everything else is just semantics. That's it. But that oil is going to continue to flow until the last one. He calls out that last one. And then this is all over. And I long for that day. But you look at this. Look at the last verse again. We'll wrap up. Verse 7, it says, Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay thy debt, 
and live thou and thy children of the rest. She had one thing. She had many needs and one thing. She needed that which was necessary to live. She needed her debts paid, and she needed freedom from bondage. And the one thing, the one thing she had, it provided everything she needed to live. It paid all her debts and released her from bondage. If you're a one, if you are of God, if all your hope is in Christ and him crucified alone, if all you have is him, nothing else, Know this, you have everything, completely and utterly full. And this scripture speaks of you, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Empty vessel, you have Christ. You have everything you need. We'll stop there. Mm-hmm.